Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Hi, listeners. Welcome again to another episode of I'm Speaking with Shaylee Shea and Kosha. Today's episode features Kate Freeze Phillips, who has a very interesting, nuanced story. I almost can't give you an overview. There's so many layers to this story. I agree with you. Like there when she was telling her story and I knew most of her story because she, she comes to us. She is a good friend and a coworker of my best friend, Jen. She like, I knew her story. I've talked to her before. I've interacted with her before. And I was like white knuckled when she was telling the story, the details of it. And then how it came around in the end. I mean, it, it sounds like we're doing that like vague booking thing, but you very much, I think we would be doing a disservice to try to like just sum up in a few words. Yeah, I don't think we can sum up. What we can tell you all is that this episode, and, and I think it's worth putting a little bit of a um, warning in front of it, does contain a story about uh, suicide and uh, an attempted suicide, other types of mental health and physical trauma. However, I was gonna say, it's always a story. It's also a story about extreme resilience. Absolutely. I was gonna say, I think the trigger warning is is really good idea here. Trigger warning for religious indoctrination, suicidal attempts, suicidal ideation, um, self-harm and domestic violence. However, to your point, if, if you can, if, if you can sit and listen and be with those elements of this story, it is such, it's such a worth it conversation to, to be part of. The thing that strikes me the most as I'm, you know, thinking about it is that yes, all of those things were discussed. Kate talked about all of those things and her own personal experience with those things, not just like, oh, it's happening over there, her own experience with those things. And yet she never comes off as being self-pitying or victimized or in any way, anything, but in completely in control of her own power. And I think that is what makes this episode as tough as it might be to listen to valuable a but b also like a story like i said a story of redemption and resilience not a story of crappy things happening to one person 
She's an amazing person. I'm so happy that she agreed to be on the podcast. She is one of our very loyal listeners. Uh, one of my favorite things in the beginning, she says, you know, Kosha and Chelsea, I am speaking, but I am also listening. And that, that brought like such joy because that's really what we're trying to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a great nod to us. It was much appreciated and very heartwarming. Absolutely. So please enjoy Ms. Kate Freeze Phillips. She is speaking. My name is Kate Phillips. My pronouns are she, her. And I am speaking. Hi, Kate. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor, you guys. Oh, it's our pleasure. Our pleasure, indeed. Uh, so I want to just start by establishing, like, how are we connected to you? So Kosha's best friend, Jen, is an infant teacher at the Child Development Center where I work. And so I have heard Kosha stories for probably <laughs> the last eight or nine years maybe oh, no. <laughs> yeah and so then finally I got to be Facebook friends so now I get to feel like I'm staying in touch and, and getting a chance to get to know Kosha but now I get to see you in person and talk to you well not in person I get to see your face close and Shailushi I've been I've listened to all of the episodes so I also want to say not only am I speaking but I am listening to all of your guests and learning so much and it's just been a wonderful experience can we, can we like use that as a like marketing quote? Absolutely. Not only am I speaking, but I'm also listening and learning so much. That's so awesome. So Jen is a infant teacher. What do you do there? What age group do you teach? I'm a preschool teacher. So I've got the fours and fives. Ooh, the ones with lots of opinions. So and so many questions, so many questions, but they're such a great age. It's like, I get them when they are so thirsty for knowledge and they're so enthusiastic to learn, but they're not real mouthy yet. Like once they leave my class and I start hanging out with them a little bit when they go in the school age room and I start, they, they have a little bit more of the attitude. It's like, oh, you're not in my room anymore. I don't have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, they're still little, they're still babies almost you they know they still, still have babies. a slight baby mentality and then they head into kindergarten and then they're like they kind of like level up they become kids little kids yeah I do remember that four five age being really like most of the time super fun but every once in a while being like you're completely unreasonable right now <laughs> <laughs> completely completely you're like little teenagers at that age right like yes yeah so this is, I think, a real great entryway to talk about your experience. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Let's start with, like, what was it like growing up? I'm originally from the Bay Area in California. Mom and dad split up when I was two. And so then my mom and my oldest brother and I moved to the mountains. Just it's about an hour outside of Yosemite National Park. You know, weekends, we'd still go he, uh, my dad stayed in the Bay Area for quite some time, but here we were in this little mountain town. I started the public school there and was in the public school for 
my kindergarten and first grade year. And then my, my first grade teacher was kind of mean, not my best experience. And I really didn't like school already because she was, she was really, she was really pretty horrible. And so my mom had found out about this Christian school. She got remarried when I was four. And my stepdad was working at a butcher shop across the street from the Christian school. And the teachers would come into the butcher shop and he said, hey, there's this Christian school. Maybe we should send the kids there. And so second grade, I was there from second grade until I graduated from high school. Christian school every day. So Bible class every morning. Shilshi and I went to Catholic school for years and we had mass every day. The big joke is like, we went to mass every day that quote, normal Catholics didn't go to mass. We didn't go on Easter and Christmas and on Sundays, but we went every other day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because we, we call the people who go to church on Christmas and Easter, the priesters. Everybody call you priesters? No. Because <laughs> you're the opposite. You're the we're opposite. The, yeah, we're the opposite. We were like the non-Catholics who still went to mass every day. It was a very small town. Our dad was a physician in town. So everybody knew us um, and knew that we weren't Catholic. So no, people didn't expect us to show up except for that we were going to school there and you would have to go to mass before you could go to, you know, the bus would drop you off in time for you to go to mass, basically. I think about it now and about my young impressionable brain. Impressionable brain. I had no reason to doubt or distrust the adults in my life who believe these things and who are teaching me these things. And they know youth group on Wednesday, church on Sunday, from second grade until I think until high school, when we did, we did the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag in the morning, but also a pledge to the Christian flag and also a pledge to the Bible. And so that was every day. And it's the same, you know, you say the same things over and over and over again. And you're singing these songs, you're memorizing these verses, and it's really wiring your brain. I didn't figure it all out until I was 30. And so I'm a really late bloomer to like critical thinking, which is ugh, mortifying to me. But, you know, I've got a lot to learn and I'm still learning. But there are people that didn't go to school with me were totally fine because they were like oh yeah that kind of sound was like bullshit to me and so they blew it off or just went through the motions or whatever but I was all in you know my my mom was a strong believer my dad was not my, my stepdad my mom converted my stepdad dad was a non-believer which really messed with my mind because you know we learned that he's gonna go to hell and so I would have nightmares and cry myself to sleep. Worrying about your dad. Worrying about my dad. And then like that put the responsibility on my shoulders to like win him over to the Lord so that he doesn't burn in hell. And so here I am a little person with these crazy dreams and nightmares and the weight of the world on my shoulders. And then. I'd go visit my dad and I'd be crying and I'd say, dad, like, I'm so worried about you. And he would just be really calm. And he'd say, you know, cause he knew where I was coming from. He grew up son of a Lutheran minister and was married to my mom for 12 years. So definitely knew 
he would just say, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And then I would tell my mom that, and my mom would say, she would quote the, the verse that is, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and cast to the depths of the sea than to lead one of God's children away from him. And I'm like, maybe I shouldn't talk to you about this either because this is getting scarier. Oh my gosh. You know, it's so much for a little brain. It absolutely is. Yeah. I want to take a step back a little bit and say, and ask you, right. So you went to school, you went to the school from second grade to after high school, or you graduated high school there. And one thing you said that given that we're not even Christian, didn't grow up in any Christian faith that really threw me off is there's a Christian flag, right? I've never heard of that or seen that. Can you talk a little bit about that? I have seen the Bible and I understand the idea of saying an oath to the Bible. If you were paying attention to the, which I'm sure you, the January 6th insurrection, there were several of them there. And I think it goes, um, I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the savior for whose kingdom it stands, one savior crucified, risen and coming again with life and liberty to all who believe. Is it the same flag and the same oath for all Christian denominations that might use this flag? I think so. I, but I, (laughs) it's going to show up more in your uh, more fundamentalist places. Um, We went to a non-denominational church. We went to an evangelical, is Twain Heart Evangelical Free Church. And we were there for quite some time. And then they married my mom and my stepdad. And then that pastor left and a new pastor came and they passed a new rule that they weren't going to marry people who had been divorced and they were all gleeful about it. And that really made my mom feel unwelcome and unloved. Othered. Yeah, completely othered. And so we kind of picked up after we'd been in that church for so long, but we went to another church because the Bible is so inherently flawed written over such a long period of time with so many different authors. There are so many contradictions. You can pretty much cherry pick and, and kind of build your own truth. It's confirmation bias, like totally built in to the Bible. A hundred percent. If you're looking for, to be consistent with the Bible, you're going to have a very hard time because there's a, a whole bunch of stuff we don't follow. IE like football should be illegal you know, that touch the skin of a pig, but there's also a lot of contradiction. So the question is, what do you follow? I, I understand that the whole idea about the Bible is sort of like divine inspiration, right? That God is supposed to inspire the authors of the Bible, of the, you know, the books of the Bible to write what he wants written or God wants written, but it's still people's words. Yes. People are always, always products of their time. So that was through. So when did you leave this particular church? Um, the, the one that wouldn't marry. Yes. And he would not marry people who are divorced anymore. I'm going to say we would have, I would have been, I think probably seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. And then I was kind of, I was kind of excited because all the cool kids went to the, the church that we were going to and the boy that I had the biggest crush on. And so it was like, cool, you know, now I'm going to get to see him on Sundays too. And 
So, I mean, I had yeah. ulterior, ulterior motives to being like, yes, let's definitely go to that church. But it was where all my friends your, went. So. Your mom, okay. Was there this like cognitive dissonance there when, when they're like, well, we're not going to marry divorced people. How did your mom kind of, how did she talk about that? Like she felt like this isn't okay, but yet it didn't cause any questioning of her loyalty to. Nope. She, she saw it as, I think the words that she used at the time to try to explain to us, she was so hurt because the way that it happened, <laughs> you ever watch the Simpsons, the Reverend Lovejoy, his voice, like that pastor kind of had that little, had that little bit about him. And then his wife, she was just so giddy about like, we just changed this rule and now we're not going to do this anymore or whatever. And it was so, my mom just said it was so legalistic and that it wasn't in the true spirit of what she believed um, the body of Christ, the people of the church, how that they should behave and how they should treat each other. And so it was like, well, you know, we're just going to go someplace else. It was never, we're just not going to have anything to do with church anymore. It's like, we're just going to find a different church. So then we, we were at that church until, until I was out of the house and they've since gone to another church um, that my brothers go to, I believe. So they're all kind of in the same place. Cause I think that the church that we were, that we switched to was a charismatic church, you know, where people speak in tongues and they dance in the aisles and stuff. That was a little bit much for my, my older brother is a much more traditional person. That was probably a bridge too far for him. So I think they, went to a place a little bit more solemn. Traditional. Yeah. yeah. Traditional. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your daily life like? So you got up, you went to, had breakfast, you went to school, walk us through. So then you was Bible class first. Like how did this all the, how, what was the day like? First period Bible. And then to really understand like how much that permeates everything. Like, even though I did learn like, I think math was probably the safest, like, go ahead and learn math, and it's probably going to be the same at a Christian school or a public school. But like science, I didn't learn about evolution, except for that evolution was wrong. And so it was creation. And everything was seen through that lens. And I mean, even... (laughs) I don't even know what the name of the class was supposed to be. I think it was like a government class, but um, our textbook was uh, Rush Limbaugh, the way things ought to be. Wow. So like, here's my brain. Like I am being wired in this very black and white, very binary thought. And you give me this book, the way things ought to be talking about feminazis and stuff. That's like, this must be true. So you've told me like this is fundamentalist religion. The authority is the Bible in my in my the faith where I was raised. So it's it's not to be questioned. It's infallible. The Holy Trinity are infallible. This is truth. And because I woke up and like prayed before breakfast and we had like devotion time when we would come home from school and like everything. I was in music and I loved music, but like even 
the songs that we would play would be hymns and the, the, the songs we would sing would be, um, would be hymns or they'd be by some Christian artists. And it was throughout the day and all day. And it was just, I mean, that's what indoctrination and it was just through and through. Yeah. So the time I went to bed and, and you know, prayed before bed and it was totally centered around Christ. And I thought that that was the way things were supposed to be. I had no reason to question it. And now looking back, I'm like, what? I mean, but. Well, how, why would you yeah, question it? Exactly. Your whole, everyone you knew was doing that stuff, right? I think. Everyone. It's, it's similar to any child's life. I mean, don't we hear all these stories about like people who kids who have been abused at home or whatever. And then when they finally go to a place, um, when they finally go somewhere else and the same thing happens and that kid doesn't get hit, you know, the other kid doesn't get hit or whatever it is, then, then only do you realize that things are different, but if everyone is doing the same thing and this, you know, this, this like indoctrination doesn't even have to be you know explicit like we are going to try and mind control you it's it's done just by being in a homogenous community right i think about both of our spouses um came from very small towns in you know the upper midwest and they're it's everyone is you know basically catholic or lutheran and everyone has the same values and people look at you weird if you don't go to church like it's okay if you go to that church or this church but if you don't go to church that's weird right and if you look a certain way that's weird and certain time of music is scary and you know all of these things which is like every 99.9 percent .9 of people do things one way and that's the right way to do it and then if you don't do it that way even if you're not doing something explicitly wrong but it's different that's wrong. Was anybody questioning? And then what would happen if you questioned the authority? I think there were these people that would kind of come and go that were like, they were at our school for a little bit and then they left or whatever. And, and or they were kind of being troublemakers and they get detention or they get suspended or whatever. And then they'd leave. And they were always really exciting. It was like, ooh, who's this new person? And then <laughs> they would be just these little, this little bright spot of like, whoa, and then they would be gone. There was one person in my class. He was a little bit mouthy. He was one of my, he was one of my good friends. And I think he had just moved to our town and was a new kid in school. And he was being super mouthy. And so I don't even remember who the teacher was, but a teacher tried to like, rebuke him and rebuke his spirit of I don't even know what they called it but like whatever whatever his spirit of like divisiveness and 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 disobedience or whatever and so then um my friend uh, started shaking and acting like he was getting a demon exercise but just kind of joking around it and it was like to me that was really funny but it was seen as being <laughs> very disrespectful yeah, like very blasphemous right but this, through this all, what I keep thinking about is as far as like, you don't know, it's like being on the Truman Show 
or something. All these things are props or it was, it's so hard to describe like the, but, but it's just like everybody's in on it. And like, but you don't, we don't question it. It's just, this is what we do. Like, this is your script, just read your script and go about your life. But one of the things that kept following me that I didn't understand was my anxiety and what I know now was depression. It was just like this little shadow and it was just always there, but I didn't know if it was just me or if everybody felt like that. Does everybody feel a little bit sick in the morning and not be able to eat breakfast and your stomach would be growling and everybody could hear your stomach growling because you're too nervous to eat? Like, was that a thing? And then what I learned later is that I was really angry. I didn't know why. And I felt really guilty about it because my mom would always say, why are you so angry? I never got in trouble at school except for once. I blew up at a teacher and then that teacher told me that I needed counseling. Um, well, didn't tell me, told my mom. It was silly. I, I felt really sick and I needed to throw up. So I left the classroom. And when I came back, he was upset with me for leaving the classroom. And I said, gosh, dang it, I had to get sick and blah, blah. He was like, whoa. And so he talked to me at recess and wanted to know. He, would, he ended up becoming a psychologist later on in life. And he just really wanted to get to the bottom of all this stuff. I'm like, I don't know what you need to get to the bottom of, dude. Like, I'm just, I was upset and I needed to be sick. And so I had to leave the classroom. But he told my mom I needed counseling. And my mom um, got very concerned about that. And so got a second opinion from a different teacher. And the different teacher was like, no, she doesn't need counseling. We're just going to move her to spend some of her time in this like gifted students class. So instead of like getting counseling, I got prayer and extra homework, which really didn't solve the problem. That's surprising. Did you ever speak to your mom about, speak to anyone about feeling anxious or depressed? No. And I think when I think about that now, I think it's because I just didn't have the vocabulary. Like, you know, it was like happy, sad, angry. Like, I don't think I got the nuance and I didn't know what to call it. And so I just didn't. And it was probably like, I'm happy. That means I am aligned with Christ. I am sad. That means I must be misaligned. I'm mad. I must also be mis. Like, it, it sounds like even your emotions were tied to the indoctrination and the religion. Was that the answer? Like, if you're in a bad mood, maybe you should pray it away. That kind of thing? Very much. Like, it's a it's a lack of faith. Yeah, very much like that is the solution to your problems. Oh, if I didn't try. I mean, I, I tried. And then it was that all of my issues stem from a lack of faith. I just am not believing in that healing. It snowballs. And and compact and it it causes guilt and shame which you try to stuff down even further and so you know now i i talk about mental health stuff all the time because because i couldn't for so long and 
I want people to hear my story and to see how I've dealt with things, not because it's been the right way, but just so that they know that somebody is dealing with it, that somebody has dealt with it. And that when we're open and honest about these things, then you can get better. But just pushing everything down, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. It just gets worse. You're like struggling with very real mental health conditions. And the answer is you just need to pray on it more. You need to have more faith. Basically, you're not a good enough Christian. Right. What, what, what did that feel like? Oh, I, I felt, so I was always kind of an overachiever. I did really well in school and I did well in sports and I did well in music. And here was this thing that was just gnawing at me all the time. And I also didn't know. So I know now having studied psychology that, Depression manifests itself as anger. Often in young people, they, they don't see it as a sadness or the, the symptoms don't look the same. So like, of course, that's what I was dealing with. But then I get angry that I'm angry. And then I'm lashing out at people, which makes me feel very guilty. And then trying to figure out like, where in this book can I learn how to deal with any of this? That's one of the, one of the things. I mean, that little bits and pieces started pulling away at what ultimately ended up being like a house of cards that was my faith. But one of the things was that like, I can't, I can't find any of these answers. And I've gone to Bible study. I've read the entire book all the way through multiple times. Yeah, you could twist this verse to kind of make it seem like it's about that. But like, no, man, this book was written by a bunch of goat herders who didn't know where the sun went at night. They don't know <laughs> what it's like for me to get through the day. And they don't care, first of all, because I'm a woman. Because you're a woman. <laughs> you know, so I ultimately was like, this, this isn't cutting it for me. That was very frustrating. So that is one of the things that always surprises me about how people in modern day use the Bible to talk about almost anything around women, which is women aren't really a part of the Bible. That was hard for me. In trying to, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead of in my story, but in trying to understand more fully my, my own story, I thought I'm going to write a book and I want to write a book about like from a, a Christian female perspective about my mental health issues, about anxiety and depression and what the Bible says about that and what the Bible says. And so I start researching and I start looking through like these different women in the Bible and I'm just more and more frustrated. The more, the more books I go through, the more I try to dig into it because the more and more I'm searching, it's like, I'm just finding that I'm a second class citizen. Like I don't feel valued and I don't feel like I'm finding any of these answers. And I know that, you know, the Bible says that, that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. And people kept telling me that. And I'm like, I, okay, so I don't know what that's supposed to mean for me and how God feels about me. And then it was just like, well, you know, it's fine for you to question your faith, but you have to make sure that you, you know, don't stray too far and whatever. And then, so you couldn't really talk about 
about these issues with people in the church for any extent of time before it's like, you, you need to pray about that. So it's fine to question, but don't question too much, but you don't know where that line is. What's also fascinating about that is like, say you did pray about it and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed about it. Right. And you, you got a vision or you had some sort of divine revelation. Right. And you go to people and you go, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed about it. And this is what God told me. And people would immediately go, that's wrong. Right. You're, you're really stuck in this, you know, this corner right between a rock and a hard place, which is the authority doesn't have anything that's helpful to me. And I'm being told to pray on it. And then when I pray on it, what I'm being told is you can't trust what you have prayed on. Yeah. Like what if Christ came to you and was like, okay, I'm totally cool with gays. Women are totally equal. Uh, divorce is fine. You know, like you could touch pigskin. Like he can he comes down and says all of that in a vision. And then you say that to the church authorities and they'll be like, that didn't happen. Right. Oh yeah. Or they'll, they'll, they'll say that that's a, a false, a false prophecy. Right. Don't pray that way. Pray a different way. Absolutely. Do you, was there ever any physical punishment's not the right word, but I guess that's the best word I can use. Consequences. Like, yeah, did did the did your school or your church ever use anything physical to keep people in mind? Paddles. We had paddles. Um, our our school had paddles. Yeah, I I didn't get in trouble in school, but I knew lots of people that did. Our PE teacher had a paddle. He called Fred that had holes drilled through it so yeah. that it could go through the air yeah, faster. We had that too. Yep. Yeah, that that was definitely a thing, but it not never happened to me. It's it's fucked up to me. Because I've heard stories like this where the teachers or the principals had like a name. That is fucked up to me that these like punishment devices have like names and like there there's a signature, like it's signed or they're like cutesy about it. Like that blows my mind. Oh yeah. Oh, I know. But it was so, it's weird to talk about it now because it was so normalized mm-hmm. that again, like this just must be, you know, it's fair the rod spoiled the child. It's right there in the Bible. Sure. Um, so. Well, that's also, I think, when when a person perpetrates violence on another person, whether it's a stranger or a, an equal, a peer, or a child, you have to disconnect from your humanity a little bit. And so that's a way to do it to actually say, I'm going to go get this paddle and beat you. That's a very clear thing about what you're doing, right? It's a statement about what you're doing as opposed to, I'm going to go get Fred. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's cutesy. It, it, it's candy coating on a very violent practice. That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it makes it more palatable for the person who is inflicting the punishment. And then to say like, I have to do this because this is what it says in the Bible. Right. Right. Also is, is saying it's taking the, the, what's it? The thing, the onus off of the person. Yeah. Take that step further. If you don't do it, you're actually out of line with God. God has given these direct instructions, spare the rod, spoil the child. It, I think, you know, that's why people say like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I.e. I don't want to do this, but this is like, in order for me 
to carry out my faith properly. This is what I need to do to you in order to walk the path of Christ. This is what you have to do, right? This is the path that that's been laid out for you. And if you want to, you know, really follow, be a, be a believer, then you have to do things that you don't necessarily like to do, but you don't know, but like, you can't know better than God. Right. Oh yeah. Were you allowed to date? Yes. Oh, oh, okay. That's different. That's a little bit actually more uh, progressive than some denominations. But you also have the, like, I mean, there's the, the fear of God. I mean, it was, first of all, abstinence, abstinence, abstinence was what we were taught. What like our, our sex ed class was. I would like to just point out that you put sex ed in quotes. Like our, our listeners can't see you, but that it was very sarcastic. So it was um, James Dobson preparing for adolescence was the book, you know, it's very mechanical. The funny thing is nobody ever talked about like sex for pleasure or anything. It was all very, very mechanical. It's just to conceive. And it's just like, we hate that we have to do it, but you know, it's just how it has to be done. I mean, it just all seems like everybody was totally grossed out, weirded out by it. Definitely abstinence. We didn't learn how any birth control worked or anything like that. Did you learn how babies were made? Like the egg and the sperm and things like that? Yes, we, we did learn that. I think because I did get a chance to see outside of my community, fairly often when I go to visit my dad, I knew that there was more out there. And I just told myself, I need to keep doing well in school. I cannot get pregnant. I gotta get out of here. So that was just like, I was very focused on that. So even though I had boyfriends, it was the sex thing was always off the table. I have no idea where I would even find birth control. Like I had no idea how any of that worked and nobody talked about it. And so it was just like, I just, not having sex and then making sure I get into a school that needed to be far away. So my parents wanted me to apply to one school in California. So I did. And then all the rest of them were out of state, but I was very singularly focused on like, Oh, there's something else out there. I have to make it through this part. So I did have boyfriends and we went out like whatever that, like, we would go to movies and go out for coffee, you know, nothing, nothing too thrilling. But my, my parents, as long as I was home at a reasonable hour, like I said, I didn't really, I didn't really push it. I was really, really focused on college. So it sounds like even in high school, you were already like, this isn't for me because you were still going to see your dad in a fairly, you know, metropolitan area where there's a lot of diversity that really did keep you tethered to a different, you know, sort of a different reality in a way that if you, you know, both of your parents had been moved there and that was like sort of your whole world that would have been complete, you know, there would have been no tether on the other side. It just would have been all there. I really think that's, that's absolutely right. I really think that I, I did have that. And a lot of people that I went to school with didn't. And I, I loved those times with him. It was, um, it was so different from my day to day. I think about like some of the people that would graduate from our school 
would go to um, the community college just down the street. And then they'd come and hang out with us still. Like the college students would come back and I was like, I can't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to stay here and keep like, you're, you're in college now. Why are you coming back to the high school? But it was just because it was a safe place and it was all that they had known. And I thought, I just, I don't want that to be me. I've been told that my dad and my stepmom, like they're not doing it right either because they're not Christians, but like, there's gotta be some way to like leave this little place, which is what I did. Like you, you know, when you carry around the same bricks, they say like, you're going to build the same house wherever you go. And so like, I went to school 2000 miles away, but I brought all my bricks with me and I constructed my same, like, I, all the same parameters. I put all the same restrictions on myself. Instead of being in California, I was in Nashville. Still couldn't break out of the mindset. I just had changed my surroundings. Sure. What was it like when you went to visit your dad? Like, what kind of things did you do when you were there? Did you just hang out at home? Did you guys go like California Academy of Sciences? Like, I'm just curious, like, what did you do? My, my dad was a partner at Pillsbury Medicine Sutro in the city. And so when I would go to work with him, he would be so busy. He'd be on the phone all day. And then at lunch, we would like go grab something somewhere. And, you know, all the sights and sounds and all the people and people watching was amazing. And then um, we'd take Bart, the um, barrier rapid transit back to, because he didn't live, didn't live in the city. You know, he was super busy. So it wasn't, I'd, I'd like to say like, maybe we saw him like once a month, we would like, you know, we'd go out to eat. They didn't cook a lot, which was kind of fun because we didn't go out a lot um, where I live. So it was kind of fun to go to different restaurants. Were you still having the dreams and the nightmares and like the worries about your dad at that point? Oh yeah, absolutely. That honestly didn't really stop until I left the faith. So that was like an ongoing, uh, just a pit, a pit in my stomach. Like I love my dad and like, how could he not see that he was going to go to hell? And like, what, how could I? And so like, there was always this part of me that was being like a little evangelist and however I could, like, I don't know. And then, but one time we were with him for an entire month. And so we took classes at St. Mary's, like little science classes for young kids. And um, he took us to church. He took us to a Catholic church. And that was foreign to us. It was so different. And he just felt like he felt like he should probably like uh, the kids have been here for so long. He should probably take them to church. And so he took us to this Catholic church and we're looking around like, we don't know when we're supposed to stand up or kneel or what we're supposed to say or do or any of it. It was just, what's this? But, you know, it was just, it was still Christianity. It was just a different flavor and it was unfamiliar to me. It was like, I mean, I guess these people are Christians. I don't know. I always think it's really fascinating and funny how later denominations branches of Christianity like look at Catholicism and they're like you're doing it wrong you know that they were first (laughs) and so they might be doing it wrong but whatever you're doing is derived from what they're doing you're compounding the wrong this idea that somehow people can know the will of the divine and actually create some kind of 
earth-based experience that actually in any way approximates what the divine would want for us to be doing feels very like it's full of hubris. It's very arrogant. It, it absolutely like, is. Yeah, sure. You worship however you want to, but don't go around and looking other people and being like, you're wrong. Because we actually don't know who's wrong and right. We don't know anything except for our own experience of the world, right? So who's to tell me my experience of the divine is any wronger or righter than anyone else's? I always find that fascinating. <laughs> That's a good word for it. Yeah, sure. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, yeah, like uh, non- That's very kind of you, Shimon. Yeah, a neutral word, yeah. It is fascinating if you can sort of take the, just to see how things evolve, right? Like that- Or are created. Right, or well, <laughs> good point. <laughs> so you're in Nashville for school. That's where we left off. And you kind of, you're like, I got to get out of here. So there's a part of you that's like starting to question, but then you're like, you kind of fell back into. I got to get out of here, but I'm going to take everything that I, I learned with me. Right. My town was very small. And everybody knew me, everybody knew my family. And I wanted a fresh start where nobody knew me. So I didn't know a soul in the entire state. And so I thought that's going to be a good spot for me. Oh, I put up Bible verses in my room, my dorm room, which, you know, it's a very bold, like super churchy person here. <laughs> so like, I'm going to go ahead and let everybody know where I stand here. I was gonna say, you know how like dogs pee on stuff to to show each other what they, like this. You, you peed all over your room. I did. It was everywhere. <laughs> so I went to Vanderbilt University, which is even though it's a secular uh, university, it's fairly conservative place, and so it was not at all difficult to find people who were raised like I was and who also had the churchy. same things in common, also churchy. I mean, Bible Belt, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was everywhere. And so I dated um, a, somebody who's he's from Louisiana. He's still a dear friend. You know, we would go to Christian concerts. We listened to Christian music. But then, like, I'm also, you know, having a beer with my friends and, you know, kind of pushing boundaries a little bit and kind of exploring a little bit. But at this point, so here I'm at a different place, um, making new friends. Nobody knows me or has any of those like, you know, Kate Kate Free's expectations. I'm I'm I went from being a like a big fish in a little pond to being like minuscule. Yeah, <laughs> I was a valedictorian in my high school, but then like I was I was so I go to a college where everybody was a valedictorian. And they're like, yeah, what else, you know? And so it was kind of trying to find a new um, sense of who I was in this new place. But that like that little shadow of the depression and anxiety, like that was getting bigger and bigger. And I still didn't have any language to describe it. Like I was just kind of like running from it. Freshman year, I decided I wasn't gonna go home at all. When I graduated, when I graduated, when I was done with freshman year, instead of going home for the summer, I looked for a job, someplace where I could stay, like 
where where can I like have room and board or whatever? And I found a camp that let me stay, but I was the only person who stayed. Like the other counselors went home to their homes at night and I was staying at this place and there was nobody else there. It was super remote. The screens all had holes in them. The bugs in this place were like nothing. I had welts all over me from all kinds of different things. It was kind of miserable, but I just, I didn't, I needed more time and school was taking up so much time that I needed that time, like work time to keep trying to figure out what was going on with me. And I made good friends. I loved, I I was a counselor for, um, they were, I think the oldest were like fifth grade and the youngest were like kindergartners. And it was just a, you know, a cool place to work and it was a great summer job. And then the next school year came and that, like that shadow that had been following me was, was much bigger than I was at that point. This is the content warning. I just needed all of the noise in my head to stop. And I was still having fun with my friends and I don't think that they had any idea what was going on with me. But at one point I just downed a whole bunch of NyQuil with every over-the-counter thing that I had in my room. I also had a fake ID, so I had like a fifth of vodka. And so I downed that and basically blacked out. Ultimately, it was like a suicide attempt. But it was, I think I didn't necessarily want my life to end. I think I just wanted life as I knew it to end. My friends, I was unconscious. My friends took me to the emergency room and um, I came to as I was walking there and I freaked out on them because I'm like, I can't afford, I can't afford to go to the emergency room. Like, what are we doing? And like, you know, it was too late. And then I got sick and I was basically fine eventually. Like physically fine, you mean? Physically, physically fine. So the thing is, at least at Vanderbilt, if, um, you are admitted into the emergency room with alcohol in your system, you have to have counseling. I had counseling, I think it was initially supposed to be about um, alcohol abuse. Here I was with a psychiatrist telling him what happened, telling him what was going on with me and he's listening. And he is like, I think, I need to see you again. I think that we've got some more going on here. Like, okay, you know, first of all, it's mandatory that I have this counseling. So I'm going to come back until you tell me that I don't have to come back anymore. And not sure how much I buy into the whole psychiatry thing at this point. I'm like, you know, whatever, just I'll come back and see you. Check the box. Yeah. Yeah. Doing what I need to do. Just try to chug along. Like really just survival mode is, I've been in survival mode since I was a kid and I'm just still in survival. The more we talk and the more I try to explain how I feel and what's been going on with me physically, he says, you know, you have major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, um, body dysmorphia, and um, anorexia nervosa. Wow. 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it that way, but I didn't expect all of those other diagnoses to come out as well. I think the eating part, you know, I played three sports in high school and then you go to college and I'm living across from a pizza place and, you know, sitting in the hallway with my friends and having beer and pizza and I'm not nearly as active. I'm walking to class and stuff, but then, you know, I start putting on a little bit of weight and I freaked out. And then I think what I did was food became that one thing that I could control. Absolutely. I was just going to say that I've had every eating disorder in the book and every single one of them is about control. Yes. It's about body image. It's about weight, but can I, I have to control that. Right. Right. What goes in and out of my body. I bought a calorie counter book and I wouldn't eat anything until I could look it up to see how many calories were in it and then write it down. We had what was the loop around campus was three miles. And so I would try to do that at least once, if not twice a day, just super fixated on that, on my weight, on my food. And it was the thing that I could control. But then, you know, I'm seeing it through somebody else's eyes and having it reflected back at me. And it's like, so many things needed to change. So then I call home and I tell my mom kind of an abbreviated version of what happened and said, so the doctor says that I have depression. I was like, and he asked if it ran in the family. And I said, no. And my mom said, "Uh, actually, there are a lot of people in your family that have depression. And it was like, what? 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 And it was just like, I couldn't fathom, like, what? And so she said, on your dad's side, lots of people in your family have depression. And I thought, well, first of all, nobody ever said anything to me about it. And then when I talked to my doctor, he said, that's good to know because sometimes medication that is effective for people in your family will be effective for you too. So if you could find out what they've taken, we can start those meds. And so here I'm calling my dad, like, Hey, have you ever taken medication and what kind? And was it helpful? And so I start this seemingly never ending process of like start a medication for six weeks and then titrate. And then does it work? Doesn't it work? Step it down, try something else. And it was just that for forever. And here, you know, I'm still trying to go to class trying to have a social life, but then trying to figure out these medications that make me feel weird. I don't feel like they're helping. I'm not sure like how to think about these diagnoses. And so I start going to the bookstore and trying to learn more about these things, which inevitably leads me to change my major because I'm spending so much time trying to learn about them. And I'm like, okay, I've <laughs> psych major now yeah right this is what I'm doing with my time anyway (laughs) yeah and so you know really trying to understand myself really was how that all started was just a very much that just a self-exploratory journey of like okay what is depression what's depression so but at this time you're still 
you're still going to church and stuff. Like you're still not separating all of this, right? At this point, I'm still definitely a person of faith, kind of more lost than ever, because now I'm in completely uncharted territory. And I'm, I'm trying these medications and taking them as directed, doing all the things that I'm supposed to do. And it's not doing anything. I'm getting the side effects, but I'm not getting like the therapeutic benefits at all. Trying one after another, after another, but you know, of course, with taking the requisite six weeks or whatever. It's like, could be years before you actually figure out what it is. I would try not to get my hopes up, but I would kind of get my hopes up when I'm like, okay, well, let's try this one. Like maybe this one's going to be the one, maybe this is going to be the one that's going to quiet my mind and help me get this pit out of my stomach. I want to feel whatever this normal thing is. Like, I don't know what's normal, but whatever it is, apparently isn't me. I've lost a few very dear people in my life to suicide. And I knew what that did to the people who are left behind. It's a pain that doesn't ever really lessen for the people who are left behind. I told myself, I wrote, I, I had, I had written a note because I felt completely hopeless. You can see in my note, I didn't want that pain for the people that I loved, but I felt I was a burden and that I knew better than they did. Like I am actually alleviating a burden by taking myself out of the picture. I still had a little bit of logic trying to pierce its way through that tangle of just the, the mess of noise in my head. And I took myself to Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital and said, I need help, like now. They took me in um, and it was one of those things where like I voluntarily checked myself in, but if I were to ask to leave, they were going to change the code on me. Yeah, I know that you got yourself here on your own, but we're not going to let you leave. And what I kept hearing from the fine doctors who I've had um, in my life was that I had a very treatment resistant form of depression. The only thing that they could recommend at that point was electroconvulsive therapy, to which I was like, I still do that. I learned about it in class. In your mind, you're like, that's like cuckoo's nest stuff, right? Like That doesn't happen anymore. But they said, well, it does. We don't do it at this hospital. We can have you transferred to a hospital in town that does. I thought, what do I have to lose? Let's do it. Let's go for it. And so I transferred to this other hospital. This part gets, um, I only remember bits and pieces of it. And then from there, only have notes from a doctor who took me on after I left that hospital. So the equipment was outdated. The lead placement on my head was incorrect. The voltage was incorrect. And they used sine waves instead of square waves. So it was the most possible damage to be done to my brain. So for people who don't, so electroconvulsive therapy, you get put under general anesthesia, put a bite block in your mouth and they induce a grand mal seizure. And from 
how it was explained to me is that over time, when when you when they induce the seizure, the neurotransmitters flood the synapses in your brain. The idea is that after a while, they'll start to just do that on their own like they're supposed to, instead of how they were in my brain. My neurotransmitters went during the job. And when done, I want to, when done properly, ECT is incredibly successful and therapeutic. 100%. When people ask me if I would recommend it, I always say I, I would try to exercise some other options first. But ultimately, ultimately it saved my life. But the first, I think, and this is the part that gets kind of sketchy. I think I had six treatments there, but so much damage was done to my brain. Um, I had to call my dad and he had to come rescue me. Um, I had to go on medical leave of absence and withdraw from my classes. I left everything behind. Um, I had to tell a friend of mine who is an RA, I have a whole room full of stuff. I've got books, I've got clothes, I've got you know, all the nonsense that you amass while you're in college. She had to like lovingly pack it up and put it in a special storage place that I could access if ever I came back. I was completely incapacitated. There was such damage done to my brain that um, I couldn't read. I had this weird thing where I, my, my memory was completely shot, like completely. I would meet this neighbors in my dad's neighborhood. I would introduce myself to them over and over and over again, not remembering that I'd met them. It was devastating because I grew up with the fixed mindset. I'm smart, not I'm a good problem solver, not I'm a survivor, not I can figure this out, I can work hard, as I'm smart. And then I got the smart shocked out of me. And then I didn't know who I was. That was my part of my identity. And it was, you know, people would save an article that they thought that I would appreciate and give it to me. And it just, it looked like utter nonsense. It made no sense to me. It was kind of terrifying. Here I was living at my dad's house, trying to make sense of what was going on with me. And it wasn't until I got a new psychiatrist where my dad was living. That psychiatrist looked at my charts and he was the one who said, you know, not to alarm you, but like, I don't know what this doctor did. Like, I can't believe this was allowed to happen. I can't believe that this is taking place in modern day hospitals. And said, even though I'm appalled at how this was executed, my advice is the same. I think you need ECT. Done well. Done properly. <laughs> Here's how we're going to do it differently. Here's how this is going to look. And again, I'm just, yeah, mm -hmm. sure, let's do it. And I started as an inpatient every other day for four weeks and then twice a week for four weeks, and then once a week for four weeks, you know, and they space it out, space it out, space it out. They would, it would get to a certain length apart and my mood would crash mm. back to every other day. Um, and then I got to be outpatient. This was before I had a conversation with my dad about how like 
you know, he was, he wasn't used to being the parent, Mm -hmm. the one that was there for all this stuff. And so he would just drop me off and then pick me up later. Everybody else had like a parent or a sibling or a spouse or somebody who was there with them. And I was by myself. And I finally told him instead of like, (laughs) instead of just being um, frustrated and resentful, I said, everybody else has somebody like, you know, can somebody stay with me? And he was like, oh, okay. And so like, what can I do for you? And I say, I'm always really, really, really thirsty. Afterwards, if I could have like a Gatorade, I started doing better. I started being able to, um, that meds were actually having a therapeutic effect. And we were able to find a good combination of meds. And it was like, things were really looking up. And did like, did the stuff like the reading, like that just started coming back? I got really frustrated with the reading. I would, I had my neuroscience book and I just told myself that when that book makes sense to me again, I'm going to go back to college. But like in the meantime, I'd wake up in the morning, my dad would be reading the paper and I would just get like the comics and just go with like small words. And then after a while, things started clicking again. Mm. and I think there wasn't a lot of comprehension or at least retention. Like I wasn't retaining information, but like I could read the words, but they, they weren't really tied to, to any information. And so it took a while for that kind of stuff to come back. I was able to tackle small books. I'd be a little frustrated. The funny thing that happened during this period of time was somebody must've recommended Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy I actually own four copies of it because I would read it and not remember that I read it and somebody would recommend it and I would go get it. Like, why do I have so many? Co- oh yeah. Cause I don't remember reading it or even getting it or even getting it. Right. And, and who knows? I mean, obviously I wasn't keeping a very tidy bookshelf if I didn't go. <laughs> this is the exact same book. So where is your mom through this whole thing? Like as you're with your dad, you're recovering, you're going through this really traumatic experience and recovery and healing. Where is your churchy mom through this whole thing? She is kind of keeping her distance when it comes to my dad. She, like, I would borrow a car from my dad and I would make the trip to go visit my mom and I would spend some time there. But I think she felt she was just trying not to step on any toes. I would call her. She would send me Um, letters. She would send me devotion books, always telling me people are praying for me. People would tell me that they have my picture on their fridge. There are people that I didn't know. I had their picture on my fridge so they could pray for me as a reminder to pray for me, which, you know, I, I appreciate people directing good and kind thoughts my way. But, you know, some of that to me seems now at this point in my life, kind of odd. A little creepy. I have your picture on my fridge. I'm like, please, please don't. (laughs) So at this point, you know, I'm still living at my dad's. My mom runs into one of my high school friends in church. And my friend asks my mom about me. And she says, she's actually living in the Sacramento area with her dad. My friend says, that's where my husband and I live. And, you know, give me her contact information and I'll look her up or whatever. And we're starting this church and we'd love to have her. My mom tells me that she ran into my friend and that she'd be contacting me. And that made me 
you know, that makes me anxious. Phone calls make me very anxious when I can't see facial expressions or body language. It's not enough information for me. So it makes me anxious. So, um, so I got off the phone very quickly, but told her, you know, to, yeah, she could come by. So she invites me to go to see her husband play soccer, her husband's best friend. She introduces him to me and we start dating and he starts picking me up and we go to church together. How anybody thought it was a good idea for me to get into a serious relationship while I've got all of this other stuff going on. I finally get to the point where I can read my neuroscience book. I talked to my psychiatrist and I said, I think I'm ready to go back to college. And he said, well, talked to my dad. My dad said, I don't think it's a good idea. And he said, well, let's compromise. He said, "Um, why don't you get a job? And if you are able to hold down a job, we'll revisit this. And so I got a job as like the worst server on the planet. (laughs) Awkward as hell. Somebody with social anxiety in a server position, like I was a disaster. (laughs) I did show up. I couldn't ever do the like, hey, like, I'm Kate, what are we having? And sit down. (laughs) It was more like, I'm so sorry to bother you. Do you want food? Like, you know, (laughs) I mean, I'm just not the person for the job. I would probably say that you were a very good person for the job because most people don't want that. Most people want like, hi, I'm your server. What can I get you? I'm definitely more equipped for, for that. I was holding down the server position and then had my follow-up with the psychiatrist who said, did you get a job? And I'm like, yes. I told him I was a server and he looked at my dad and he said, well, I couldn't do that. And so I felt really good about that, that here's this brilliant psychiatrist who's like, if you could do that, I think you're, I think you're ready. So I had two more treatments left. My boyfriend took me to my two last treatments, which I thought was like, wow, this person is really, you know, invested in me Mm -hmm. and is really cares about me. And he says that he wants to come to Nashville with me. Nobody says that that's not a good idea. And we get engaged wow. and then we go to Nashville and he lives in Antioch and starts working for Dell. And I live in the dorms for the first semester and then we'll get married and then we'll finish and we'll live in married student housing for the second semester. And then I'll graduate. That made perfect sense. That sounds very lovely. It does make, per- it does make sense. Like you're describing it to me. On paper. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't say like, and then we'll adopt a Tyrannosaurus Rex and I will drive, I will ride that to school every day. And I was like, um, no, that's fantasy. But like what you're laying out is like, I'm going to live on campus. We'll get married. Then we'll live in campus, married housing and I'll finish school. school, And that's, and then I'll be that. Like that makes perfect. That makes sense. It's just when I think now, like I was not in any state of mind to make that kind of a life choice. But you know what? You said something early on where you're like, I didn't learn critical thinking until way later in your life, right? So so that actually, that tracks here. Nobody was saying it's a bad idea and you haven't developed critical thinking skills right. to this point. So it you weren't in a place to do it, but you were also not in a place to question 
whether you were in a place to do it. Yeah. And, and it was like, here's somebody who, so we're in, really involved in this church. So you're taking your bricks with you again. All your bricks are with right. you. Well, this, this, is, this was when we're still in Sacramento. And yes, those definitely came back with me. It was very interesting because this is when, I don't know, I want to say gaslighting starts because his friends don't know me. My friend from high school knows me, but then all these other people, they think like, he's too good for me. They don't think that we're a good match. I'm too, because I like to have a beer, but that was like too far out. He liked to have beer too. So it was like, I wasn't the type of Christian that they were familiar with. Uh-huh. They all went to the same Christian high school and then Christian college. And here I was going to this secular sure. college. And so I was out there and like, not good enough for him, which was strange for me because I was always the one that like parents wanted their kid to go out with. And suddenly I'm not good enough. And this is also when the first time he was ever physical with me, we were just dating, but I said something that upset him and he shoved me into a pole in my head. Like here, I'm already like feeling worthless because my brain doesn't work. Like I want it to, I can't remember stuff, you know, I'm a burden and here I've done something obviously frustrating. There were all these little red flags. I wasn't paying any attention to them. I go to Nashville. I show him around, super proud of what had become my town, my home. Like I, I dug into classes, did well, finished up. We got married in January, um, came back, finished school. The graduation was a big deal for me. I worked so hard to be able to finish school after you know, not being able to read to like going back. And I said, because people want to, well, you know what, just finish school in California. It's like, no, they owe me a degree. I'm going to get a degree and not only <laughs> I going to get it, but they're going to hand it to me. Like, I know I was 24 when I graduated and like, I know I'm older than everybody else who's crossing the stage, but like, you are going to look at me. You're going to say my name and you're going to give me my degree. I want my diploma. God damn it. I'm going to get it from here. From these people. Yeah. And I was determined. That part was all well and good. But then we moved to Nevada. He had been an accountant and he got a job um, starting a new firm in Nevada. It's, so here I'm like, okay, I've got a bachelor's in psychology and child development. That and a dollar will get you a cup of coffee. So what am <laughs> I going to do? So I got a job as a teacher at a Christian school, teaching preschool slash kindergarten class. And this is the sec. this is like, seemed a, a good fit for me until it was time to teach the kids about Easter. And I was not comfortable with that. And it was the first time that I was like, maybe I'm not all about this religion. Or, you know, this is something that just doesn't feel right in me as a person. My doctor told me, Um, with the ECT that it would take seven years before I knew how much damage had been done to my brain. Like the clock had been running on that. My brain was continuing to heal. There are things that are starting to kind of trip me up a little bit when it comes to uh, my faith. And that was one of them. It was like, 
oh, this feels really bad to tell kids that um, Jesus died for their sins so that they don't go to hell. I'm not real comfortable looking in these sweet, innocent eyes and telling them that. So I ended up applying to grad school, studying applied behavior analysis. Pretty fresh out of ECT, I thought I talked, I had a new psychiatrist in Nevada. She thought it'd be a good idea if just for my peace of mind, I spoke to my professors and said, look, this is what I'm dealing with. They're psychologists. They should understand all this. May I have extra time on the test or some help with notes? So I go around to the different professors. Here's the deal. No problem, except for one professor who kind of ended up making it her mission to make my life miserable. Oh, that's lovely. Like your first grade teacher? <laughs> yeah, she was that teacher reincarnate. She told me, oh, well, this isn't even relevant in my class. We don't do um, quizzes. We don't do this. We don't do that. It doesn't, this is irrelevant. And I was like, okay. And then first day in class, she does a pop quiz. Oh boy. Like I had a panic attack. Afterwards, I had to leave the room. I was shaking. She wasn't ever supposed to call me out, but she would say, Kate, we're going to do this or whatever. So if you need to leave the room, you should do that now. And she started doing those kinds of things. My now husband wasn't very supportive of me either because I had to spend a lot of time studying and I had courses and I had. And you started getting ideas in your head and stuff. Well, it was like, it was, a, it was a lot of work. My stipend was, I helped run a center for adults with developmental disabilities. I was a behavioral consultant to the Carson City School District. And then when I wasn't doing that, you know, we were talking about papers and, and projects. And he was feeling left out, I think. You, you were just too busy to be a good wife. I would invite him to, to come to do these things. Like we were going to all, we're going to all go grab a drink and like he goes yeah but all you ever talk about is behavior analysis I'm like because that's what I'm doing right now right, yeah, right. that's what I'm doing but then we were also starting this other church in Reno my, my time was getting pulled from that eventually I started having seizures that weren't brought on in the hospital my body had learned to handle stress like that and so I would get these panic attacks and I would pass out. And it was happening regularly enough and usually triggered by that one professor. So I tried to talk to other professors and they said that they would do anything to help and that they thought what she was doing was wrong and all of that. But eventually I couldn't go to school anymore because I was having seizures all the time. I had developed a seizure disorder. Wow. A response to stress. A defense mechanism. Jeez. I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't either. Yeah, it was bonkers. So here I can't finish school. I can't drive, can't work. And so we came back to Nashville. And here my brain is continuing to heal on more than one occasion, was chased out of my home, being told, you're so fucking worthless. Like shouting from the truck while I'm trying to walk away from the house to a safe place, following out down the street and shouting these things at me. And I had completely internalized that. I believed it completely. 
I'm worthless. I'm worthless. I was in a very, very dark place. I'm a fighter. So I'm trying to find things that I can do to get to bring in a little bit of money and start doing yoga to help take care of myself. This yoga DVD that I have is Kundalini Yoga. You heard of Kundalini Yoga? Mm -hmm. You know, the mantra over and over again, I'm probably going to pronounce it incorrectly, but Satnam, the truth within, Mm -hmm. it was over and over and over. Sat on the inhale, Nam on the exhale. And then it was like a light bulb. I can't fucking freeze. What am I doing? What am I doing with my life right now? And it was like seven years after ECT. None of the stuff that I believed made sense anymore. So if the brain is this biological computer that ECT rebooted, like it rebooted, but then the cultural software of the religion wouldn't play anymore. Mm. It was, it, it was, it didn't make sense. And so I told my husband, I don't think I believe any of this anymore. He was very taken aback, but said, it's okay to question your faith and whatever. I was at work one day and he walked in and he said, it's okay for you to question your faith. But if you come to the realization that you don't believe in God, we're done. Holy shit. Like, what do I do about that? Like, what am I going to do? I don't make very much money. How do I live on my own and all of these things? But I thought, well, better figure it out really quickly. And so I found a place to live. There was a girl that I met at a bar who had a room for $420 a month. And I could do that. And so I told him then we're done. I guess we're done. We're done. And uh, things have only improved since then. Things started to making sense like for the first time. And I was 31 years old. And it was like, it was like seeing everything for the first time. It took brain damage to undo the indoctrination. But then I lost my marriage. I told my older brother that I thought that religious indoctrination was child abuse and that I resented how I was brought up. And so I got disowned from my family, Um, was told that I could visit in a neutral place and go for a walk, but I wasn't to come to the house. And I knew that that was going to be the consequence. And I chose my own survival. I have a relationship with them now. It took about seven years for them to realize that it wasn't a phase. Now we can have civil conversations. There's always going to be that gap because I'm not a sister in Christ, but I get to be whole. I guess it seems selfish that that's what I chose, but I was always going to be uh, living somebody else's story instead of writing my own. I'd much rather be where I am now. And now I'm uh, instead of married to a uh, an asshole. <laughs> an asshole. <laughs> Although Randy would say he'd probably, Randy would probably say he's an asshole too. I'm married to an ecology and evolutionary biology scientist, somebody who is not a science denier and somebody who supports me in everything that I do. That is, well, you know, it's interesting because you said like maybe it's selfish and I think it's not selfish, it's self-preservation. 
right? Selfish is when you want more for yourself than you would want for everyone else. And I don't hear you saying, look, I should be the only one that gets to like question my faith or, you know, make decisions and not be indoctrinated. What I hear you saying is other people, everyone should be able to move into the world and not have this backpack of bricks that they have to carry around with them everywhere that they get to decide if they want to use bricks or if they want to use wood or if they want to live in a tent right like not everyone needs to have a brick house everywhere that they go um and not all brick houses need to look the same if as a five-year-old or a 10-year-old you're like here's the plans and here's your bag of bricks and everywhere you go, this is the only kind of house that you could possibly, this is the only kind of house that would be safe. This is the only kind of house that will protect you from the elements. Everything else is going to fall apart. And then you go, oh my gosh, absolutely. I got to use this blueprint and I got to use these materials because I want to be safe. Then everything is the same. You're just so limited. And then when you actually say, but people live in tents and you know, they don't get eaten by wild dogs maybe I could try something else. And other people should also feel welcome to try something else if it makes sense for them. That's not selfish. That's actually, a, you know, the idea that you would actually do unto others as you would do for yourself. The fact that you would even call that selfish to want to be whole speaks to the indoctrination. And the fact that, I mean, I love that you, you, I don't love that it, you called it, but like <laughs> the fact that you called it out as child abuse, right? Like that type of mental beatdown is, is not allowing those children to be whole. And then it's, it's considered selfish to want that. Yeah. Right. And you're calling that out. I mean, I, I really appreciate that because one of the things that I do with Anushka is like, as much as it drives me crazy, all of the why questions that kids can ask, like I answer them. Like there's, there's really not any, like, because I said so here in this house, because in my house, right. Because it's very much like, I will give you the answer. Sometimes it's because that's how it has to be right now or whatever, but I will answer those questions because I want her questioning what people come at her with. Absolutely. Learning how to do that in the safe space in your house will prepare her for when somebody is doing something that absolutely needs to be questioned. And it's like, hey, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem right. And she's already ready to and, and empowered to ask questions and to question authority. I mean, I would have, I, I, I never, I never questioned authority. Right. And then, and the, and the other piece of the child abuse thing is that like, there's this I heard somebody describe it as this feeling of like being over this trap door that could open into eternal pain and suffering at any moment. So like I would have, you know, angry, mean thoughts, bitter thoughts and have to then ask for forgiveness. You know, the thought police, because mm -hmm. if God knows all of my thoughts, boy, when that was gone, when I didn't have to do that anymore, when my thoughts were my own, I wasn't in, like, there wasn't the shroud of guilt and shame over anything that I did wrong. It was like, oh, it was so liberating. And I didn't feel like I was, you know, that, that trap door feeling. 
or that there's this realm of spirits that if I make some wrong choices that I'm inviting, you know, that there's the spiritual warfare that I have to do mm. battle with. Penance with, right. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not burdened by any of that anymore. Really, I got to a place where my environment was so healthy, I was surrounded with critical thinkers and wonderful ideas and people who were good, not because of the threat of heaven or the threat of hell or the promise of heaven, but just because it was the right thing to do, like just good people because it was the right thing to do. I was able to decrease my medication to the point where I don't even take medication for depression anymore. Like my depression is in remission. If you look at my doctor's notes, it's like the first time I saw that I burst into tears because those words, I just, but then, you know, you know, I, I understand that that means that the depression could come back. It also means that it can go away. It's it's a whole new meaning to mental health to me because it's not just that I've got my my chemicals balanced out. It's that I've been able to adjust adjust my environment to be a healthy space. I'm an introverted person. I'm in my head a lot, and so I should make my head a comfortable place to be, a good place to be, and so trying to nurture good, kind, loving thoughts about myself and surround myself with people who are affirming and who lift me up. And also not have the pressure of saving people. Oh, I don't have to worry about any of that anymore. That was such a burden. It's amazing. Like I I seriously, in that moment when I was, when it was just like, I don't, I don't think I believe any of this. I feel like if I were on a scale at the moment, I lost like 2000 pounds. The weight of all of that was gone. And it was so liberating. And so when people, I think that the people who know me best know that there is not a chance that I'm going back. I think that there are those, there are definitely those who have tried. There are people who have definitely tried to shame me and try to use hell to scare me back into the fold but it's laughable to me because I'm not afraid of hell mm-hmm. and I've told them like if there is a god I don't think for one thing it's the god of it's not of the Abrahamic faiths and if the god if it is that god then I'm so prepared to um accept his apologies he knows exactly where I stand and why and when, when he's ready to ask for my forgiveness, I'm ready to listen. I think it's really interesting that, you know, earlier you had said I was in survival mode. I was just trying to survive and you've gone from surviving to not just, you know, being okay, but you've created the conditions for you to thrive. Yes. I mean, that's really what religion, spirituality should do for anyone, which is, give us principles or concepts or ideas to think about, to discuss that would allow us to be better people and to thrive, right? Not just like, not just follow a set of rules. And I know a lot of people disagree with me about this, but that 
spirituality is not just about following a set of rules. It shouldn't be dogmatic. It should be dynamic. And it should also really be something that you can personalize so that you can thrive. It takes a lot of mental strength, you know, stepping away from something that binds everybody else in your life together and saying, that's not for me means that you risk actually losing everybody in your life. You know, this, like your marriage, your siblings, your parents. Facebook became um, a, a war zone. People coming after me, they kept on telling you, you used to be so sweet. And like, just because I don't believe this anymore, it doesn't mean that I'm not still me. Still you. Your personality is the same. It's not like you're walking around with pitchforks, like throwing them at people. It was very much like, because I left, instead of treating me like they do the other non-believers where you're trying to be a good witness and trying to show them the love of Christ, trying to bring them into the fold, trying to to be Christ to them. It was like, "Mm -mm, I had already been part of it. I've seen behind the curtain. I know how it's all made. So then I am the enemy. And a lot of church, a lot of these like evangelical churches have suppressive persons in like Scientology in Latter-day Saints. They call them like apostates and stuff like people who have not just are non-believers, like maybe Shayla, she and I, but someone who has actively left the church is now even like lower but you can look at like you can look at you know the two of us who are non-believers with a little bit of like you just don't know. Let me witness to you in the sweetest, most loving way possible, because you just don't you just haven't seen the light yet. Like I right. can't blame you if you haven't seen the light yet. I'm going to try and get you there. But for someone who's who's been a part of it and then actively says no i mean that you're basically aligning yourself with lucifer yeah you're walking away from the light you were there and now you're turning it off on purpose when i tried to put myself because i i grew up in that like i knew what the consequences would be but when i try to look at it from their perspective i think that they felt a great amount of betrayal you know here i've been a part of it. I've been with them. They've poured their energy into me. They have been with me, like some of them in like these spiritual retreats where you're so vulnerable and you're experiencing these things. They're, you know, I, I've had to explain, like I, we were being manipulated, but um, it all feels very real. And then here I say, no, that's not, you know, I, I really think that, that people felt betrayed. And while I don't, you know, wish to make them feel that way, I, I um, still had to step away. Like, you're not going to be able to guilt, shame. You're, there, there's, there's no way to draw me back in because it ceases to make sense now. Like it, and, and to try to use the things on me that I would have used, like, I already know all of your tools. I know all the verses. I know all of it. And I don't want to have anything to do with it. And as far as the guilt goes, one of my uh, favorite Randy sayings is um, 
guilt's like a bag of rocks. You just have to put it down. Oh, so it's not like penance. I don't have to carry this. Okay, well, I'm not going to. Once it becomes a choice, yeah, there's no going back. Yeah, there's not. Well, the, you know, that the analogy that you used before, but like the ECT kind of like, it was like a hard, hard reboot on your brain, right? And then every, all the systems started to come back online and everything started to sort of, you know, update. The operating system was updating. Well, we all know that sometimes old software doesn't work when you do an upgrade. It just can't, you can't use old programs. If I tried to play Oregon Trail <laughs> from the 19, 80s on my current computer it would not work it just would not i there's nowhere to put it shale she's still salty that she never won i am i was eight eight miles away (laughs) (laughs) what did you put on your tombstone when i hate the stupid game (laughs) did you die of dysentery i think she died of dysentery yeah i just dread no i think i starved to death Cause oh. I was like dragging my, I hadn't eaten in like, we all died. Weeks. Like all Everyone of her, was her dead, could die. I was like, I, and I, I was, I was just dragging myself. Anyway, conceptually that's, that's what it is, which is you, your, your operating system for who you were was, was different. And it didn't, whatever the old programs that you were running about how your life was going to be or what you wanted to do didn't work anymore. And the doesn't matter how hard you try and jam it in there. It's still not going to take like, it's like me being at, like, if I tried to shame my computer into why it's not playing Oregon trail, it's it's still not going to work. It's not going to feel guilty. It's not, it just doesn't take, there's nowhere for it to go. And so, you know, this, I, this idea that like people, I can understand people feeling betrayed, i.e. like we trusted you, we loved you as one of our own. And it feels like you're like turning your back on us and you're telling us we're wrong. Um, I, I get that mentality, but this like, you're, you're gonna regret it and blah, blah, blah. And you're gonna go to hell. And you're like, yeah, but I don't believe in any of that anymore. So telling me I'm gonna go to hell is not helpful because I outright reject that concept yeah yeah yeah. that's like telling me the tooth fairy isn't gonna get my teeth you're like i i know that there isn't tooth fairy so (laughs) oh it's real scary it doesn't have it doesn't have any any power like the spell has been broken that's a that's a story and a half that's two and a half stories welcome to my brain (laughs) i had i had no idea going in I just was, it was one of those, you know, Hail Mary shots. Let's see what happens. And I'm so, so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. I get that. I mean, this is all like, well, it's either this or I die. Yeah. It's also really fascinating. I'm sure people have said to you, like, you're so brave. And you're like, I didn't have any other options. I've had people say that to me. Oh, you're so brave. Uh, Well, my other option was to die. So I decided I would rather live. You did all the treatments and kicked cancer's ass. Yeah. I'm going to ask the second to last question, which is what advice would you give to anyone in any of the circumstances you have described? Any, any advice that you want to offer 
on any piece of your life would be fantastic because it's so there's so much richness and experience that you have to offer. I think for somebody, say somebody who's in the faith, whatever their faith may be, and who is thinking that that might not be their path, it's really helpful to know that you're not alone. There are a lot of people out there who are not people of faith, who are amazing individuals who, again, like their moral compass isn't because they're afraid of hell or hoping to get to heaven. They're just trying to do their best with where they are right now. Because if they're like me, they believe that we get one shot. This is life. So don't, don't spend it on fairy tales. Like you have to live it now and know that you're not alone because there are a lot of us out there who aren't people of faith who would be happy to take you take you in to our crew. And that if you're familiar with the footprints in the sand that used to be in everybody's house where I grew up, that, you know, here's this person who has a dream that they're walking with, walking with Jesus in the sand and all the flashes of their life. They see all these, these sometimes there are two pairs of footprints and sometimes there's this one and it seems to be only in the hard times but there's this one set and it's because that's when Jesus carried you and I would say no you look at that single set of footprints and realize that you did that that's you that's you determining to take one more step no matter how hard and you just keep going forward that was nothing external that was you and I think I'd like to tell my younger self, like, baby girl, those are your footprints. You kept going. And I think so often we're told to look externally, but lots of times the strength is right where we already have it, right with us. Good advice, Rachel. I think one of the best pieces of advice is actually something that I saw in a meme, which is... (laughs) That's awesome. That is an awesome way to end this. Whenever you have negative self-talk in your head, picture it that Donald Trump is giving you that advice. <laughs> oh, that's good. That he's the one who is doing the negative self-talk because it's super easy to tell him to fuck off. Oh, that is true. That is true. I like it. So if, you're, if you're having those negative, negative voices, just change it to his voice. So I'm sorry, that got really political. No, no. No, no that's okay. No, no. One of the things, you know, Kosh has been really um, very uh, open about having anxiety issues. And, you know, one of the things that she has said that helps her is like, when I have these thoughts in my head, I have to ask myself, who told you that? And if the answer is, I came up with that on my own, then you just get to put that away, right? Like, did somebody actually tell you that they're mad at you? No. Are you deciding that someone might be mad at you because they didn't text you back right away or they gave you a K instead of, (laughs) okay, that sounds great. (laughs) You know, then who told you that? Nobody said anything to you. It's a story that you're telling yourself, right? And I think that the notion of what is the story you are telling yourself is useful in almost any situation, whether it's you know, I can't do it without my faith 
um, someone's mad at me because they gave me a short text or, you know, in relationship issues like, well, they're saying that because of X, Y, and Z. That, you know, this person only cares about money. This, this conversation's about money and that's why they don't want to go on this vacation or whatever it is. And this is a whole like, what well, is the story you're telling yourself? And who told you that story? And if the, if the only answer is you, start over. Absolutely. I like that. So I love that you are a listener of the podcast for so many reasons. One of which is I don't have to explain what Familect is. That is lovely. Um, so what, can you give us some examples of Familect in your life? I can, I know I'm trying to keep it short. So I'll give you, I'll give you um, current Familect, which is um, that somewhat because of pandemic, somewhat because of social anxiety and some of it just laziness, I only know the neighbor's names who are like directly like across the street or on either side of us. And we've just come up with other names for the other neighbors based on their behavior. So the Pullersons are the ones whose dogs pull them down the- Pullersons, I got it. Those are the Pullersons. And then there's a couple that I have waved to every time I pass their house for years. They never say hi, they never wave, and they're just always out there smoking. So those are the Smokersons. I, I forget that Randy and I call them that. And then just last week, one of our friends from a totally different place was in front of the Smokerson's house. He was at the Smokerson's and I almost asked him, how do you know the Smokerson's? And I was like, that is not your name. That is amazing. But yeah. So oh, that's, good. that's awesome. That is, cause that it, I mean, you could just see the connection there, which is like the Pullersons, the Smokersons, the Mowersons, like the people who are like always mowing their lawns or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Very lazy, but it, it works. But that's, what's, what's amazing about that is we always talk about Family Act, how like if someone else came into the room and they'd be like, why are you using that word? And then you did it the opposite way where you almost used your Family Act <laughs> to somebody else and have them be like, Mm, I don't know a Mr. Smokerson. <laughs> well, I was so caught off guard. I was listening to a podcast, getting close to the house. And I was like, oh, hey. And I'm like, hang on, press pause, take my earbuds <laughs> out. And I'm like, how are you? And I'm like, almost, my next words were almost, how do you know the Smokersons? And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm so glad that I was able to take a breath. Oh, that is awesome. That is awesome. That's very good. Kate, you've been so lovely and so generous with your time and so vulnerable and open I, I we cannot thank you enough thank you both so much this has been amazing I just I so appreciate what you do and listening to other people's stories has been nourishing it's been amazing and I just love that you give people this platform to share their stories so thank you so much and now your story will nourish somebody else who needs it so. I so I hope it makes sense. It's all. It does. It, okay. No, it absolutely. It does make a lot of sense. And I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with mental health issues. It's coming to the forefront. There's so much stigma around it that people don't even seek the very basic of services and what you had to go through to get healthy, to get well was so 
it just ran the whole gamut, right? So if you can do it to any of our listeners or to any of our listeners' friends or taking a small step can really, you know, not everyone needs to go as far as you did. Hopefully no one needs to go as, you know, very few people know, need to go as far as you did, but taking that first step will get you to a place of being well. Absolutely. Well, I think part of this podcast and the stories is like listening to it and be like, Recon- I mean, I love the imagery that you use too, like the, the, sh- the shadow behind you, like just one person to go, uh, I kind of feel like there's a shadow behind me too, or over me. Like that's all it takes is, is to feel nourished and to feel like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not alone. Right. Which is what absolutely this podcast is about. So, oh my gosh, thank you so much for your time and, um, everything. And we will definitely be in touch. Okay. Thank you. Have a lovely evening. You too.